The themes we have to consider this evening, the sovereignty and the majesty of God, are obviously linked by the fact that God is king of the universe. Sovereignty and majesty relate to God as king. And this divine kingship is grounded in the reality of the universe, the cosmos, having been created by God. The universe around us and our own beings are not self-caused, nor are they simply part of something that's always been there, as though this material world and the processes going on within it have unending duration in and of themselves. The universe and everything in it, including humanity, exist because God willed that they exist. He is the creator. He is the datum, he is the given that stands outside the created realm, is the cause of its existence and is the source of meaning and purpose in the whole of this life of ours, in the whole of the destiny, not only of our world, but of the vast worlds in the universe. All owe their existence to him. And so he is rightfully the king. He is rightfully the ruler. He has brought them into existence, and it is his his prerogative to say what is going to happen to them. He is the one who directs the course of the universe. And it goes further than that. As well as having rightful jurisdiction over the cosmos, God is all-powerful. And so his sovereignty presents us not not only with the reality of authority, grounded in the fact that he is the creator, it also presents us with effective authority. He wills and he has the power to cause what he wills to hold sway. He is the one who is in real control over all that is. Now that is not the viewpoint that this world shares nowadays. If you say things like that, uh, they they ask, how do you know? What is the basis for saying all that? We have no other basis than the testimony of Scripture. There God speaks of what he is in himself, and of his relationship with this world that he has created. We read from the prophet Isaiah, many other passages in those chapters from 40 onwards speak to this very problem. In chapter 46, the prophet says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. 
I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. He comes and he says, I am God, there is no other. I am the one who has made this known, and what I have said is that I have a purpose for all that I have created, and I will do all that I please. And it's because God has so revealed himself that we are in a position to determine how this world came into existence and to determine, insofar as he has told us, how it now operates and where it is going. God's sovereignty has traditionally been talked of by theologians in terms of his decrees. And perhaps the best definition is still that of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained of whatsoever comes to pass. Perhaps the only aspect of that answer that could be improved on is the use of the the plural word decrees. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose. Many would nowadays talk instead of God's plan to emphasize the unity of his action and the purposiveness of it. Decrees suggests a multiplicity of various strands uh, that just come together because they're backed up by the authority of God. Whereas God's purpose is one. Uh, Because there is no limit to his understanding, because there is uh, no limit to his ability to bring all things together at the same time. He has one plan. One plan that relates not to what he is in himself, When we talk of God's plan, we're not talking about God's attributes or his being or the relationships that have existed within the triune God from as far back as we can possibly think. Those are parts of what God is in himself. When we talk of God's plan, we're talking of what God decided to do outside of himself. Uh, We're talking about his will. His plan relates uh, to uh, his purpose in creation and to the way in which he is now working in this world of ours. And his sovereign purpose is all-embracing and all-comprehending. And that follows from the, the very nature of God himself. As far as we can understand, God's knowledge is always complete. When we think of something, we have to think of first one thing and then another. Our minds cannot take in everything at one time. Not only that, there are many things that even though we know them, uh, we can't think about them at the one time, and there are many things that we don't know about at the one time. But God doesn't need to wait till events unfold 
in the way in which we have to wait before we can come to an adequate understanding of things. He has a single, comprehensive view of all. And that plan is developed according to his purpose, which is free and sovereign and unchanging. When we say it's free, we are saying that God is the ultimate authority. He's not under the influence of anyone or anything else. Nothing else external to himself has made God make up his mind as to what he's going to do out with himself. He's sovereign. He has the authority and he has the control that his authority is effective. And what he has purposed and planned is unchanging. Because if it changed, it would be saying that God lacked wisdom. He lacked wisdom when he formulated his plan. Or else he lacked power when it came to implementing his plan in the process of time. As we think about what God, the sovereign Lord of the universe, is doing in our world, there is no unforeseen circumstance that deflects him from his previous decision. He knew about it already. And there is no inadequacy of power or control that frustrates him, that prevents him from carrying out what he has decided. So there is no way in which he needs to change what he has already determined. And what he has determined is a plan that leads forward to a goal that he has decided. Now, as we seek to think through the way in which God's sovereignty works out, we're obviously going to have to grapple with several big questions. There's the nature of human responsibility as God works out his plan. There's the way in which individuals are saved as the sovereign God works out his plan. There's the question of how can there be evil in the world that the sovereign God has got under his control? There are questions like how can prayer be meaningful? What sense is there in asking for something if it's all decided already? I'm sure there are others as well, but those are quite enough big questions to be getting on with. And that's why I'm very glad that we don't just have this evening to consider them, because if you look at the flyer, you'll see that next week the theme that is set down is is providence and power. And that's very close to sovereignty and majesty. So I've decided uh, that I'll postpone until next week considerations relating to evil, relating to the existence of evil in this world. And under this theme of sovereignty, I want to focus more on the reality and the meaningfulness of human choices in a world that God controls. It's a fairly arbitrary division, and I 
probably stray over the border at times, uh, but it means if you ask awkward questions about evil, I'll say that's next week's problem. (laughs) So let's begin by thinking just a little bit more about the sovereign plan of God. What does Scripture tell us? That's where we have to begin. Not what sort of plan do we think God has based on our reasoning, but what does Scripture tell us? Well, it tells us firstly very clearly that God's plan is eternal. This is one area where there are many texts that could be quoted. But the one that I like best is the verses in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, part of Nebuchadnezzar's confession. The confession of one of the greatest uh, tyrants, really, of the ancient world when he had been brought to his senses. And he said of the Lord, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? His dominion is an eternal dominion. It's emphasizing that God's plan... God's kingly rule, the structures and the pattern of it, were devised before ever the world came into existence. It is not the case that God has had to think up some stopgap measure to deal with the unforeseen. His dominion and his plans for his creation were drawn up before He acted. And that's particularly true as regards his purposes of salvation. In writing to the Ephesians, Paul declared that God's salvation was from before the foundation of the world. That his choice of his people, he said to Timothy, was from before the beginning of time. And that's not just a matter of salvation. It applies to every aspect of God's rule. At one place in the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 37, God's talking of the havoc that the king of Assyria has created in the lands he's conquered and especially in in Palestine. And God says, Long ago I ordained it. In days of old I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. The action of the ruler, the king, Sennacherib, was something that God had planned long before. It wasn't something out with his control. It was something that fell in with his eternal plan. So God's Sovereign rule is eternal. And it's also, Scripture tells us, based on God's own will. In the passage we read there in Isaiah 40, 
Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Questions upon questions are asked. And the answer is there was no counsellor. There was none that the Lord called on to enlighten him. The way that is right and the way that God has determined is one that he has decided for himself. And in this we rejoice. Because that means that the plan is a perfect plan. If it was one that had had a human contribution to it, it is one that would have perchance been flawed. But it is one that is divine through and through. It is constructed with perfect wisdom to cover every circumstance and eventuality. And therefore, although it is higher than our understandings, therefore, although it often has aspects that baffle us, we may still have confidence in it because it is the Lord's plan. And it's also the case that the plan has, as its primary aim, there are other aims as well, but its primary aim is the glory of God. All things were created by him and for him. We find meaning and purpose only as we relate ourselves to God. And his salvation is in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. That's what you find in the the Song of the Elders in Revelation chapter 4, where they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. He is the one who has brought all into existence. His plan is one that affects all. And the way in which he is working it out is so that he can ensure the praise in salvation of his glorious grace, in his general working the praise of his wisdom and wonder at his power revealed in all that goes on. So the plan of God is with a view to his glory. And it is a plan that is all-inclusive. You see, this is part of what's involved in the image of God as king. If you said to a king, that realm, that country is all yours to rule over, except for that city there, or except for those people out in that area, they are not under your control. Any human king, any earthly king would view that as a challenge, would view that as a, a blemish in his realm. If there was one area or one pocket of people who somehow were not totally under his control. If you look at the history, yeah, the history of these islands, I'll use the plural, both north and south of that border, you'll find that that's often the story of history. The king on the throne trying to deal with one pocket of resistance there, one pocket of rebellion there, so that he could truly justify the claim, I am the king of wherever. 
And it's the same when it comes to God as king. We dare not say that there is anything that falls out with the scope of his sovereign rule. As Paul said to the Ephesians, he is working according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. This is what the sovereignty of God means. And scripture doesn't hesitate to say that that control and that purpose and that will and that plan extends to all, even to the actions of wicked men. I'm slipping into next week's mode, but I've got to put it in there. Even to the actions of wicked men. Peter put it in the, at Pentecost when he spoke to the Jews. This man was handed over to you, he said to them regarding their treatment of the Lord. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, they put him to death by nailing him to the cross. What is the deepest depth of man's rebellion against the king? Uh, The death of the king's own son took place by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. His plan, his rule however baffling it may be to our understanding, is one that includes all that has taken place. And his plan is effective. Prophet Isaiah says this twice in different words in Isaiah chapter 14. In verse 24 he says, The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand. And then in verse 27 he says, For the Lord Almighty is purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? And lest we should say, Oh, but that's just in the big things. Lest we should say, God's plan is like some of these politicians' plans. They give you the main headings. They give you the main outlines. And then they're very, very vague when it comes to the details. Scripture says, no, it's not like that at all. God's plan extends right down to what we might think of as chance happenings. Scripture says quite clearly in the book of Proverbs, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God's plan, God's sovereign control is effective, not only at the crises of history, not only in the big events of this world, but right down to the events that we can't tell which way out they're going to turn. He knows. He's in control. He's directing it to further his purposes. So when we talk of God's sovereignty... We're talking of something that stretches back before the world began. 
We're talking of something that arises from within God's own will, God's own decision-making process, uninfluenced by outside factors. We're talking about God's way of working with the world that he has created so that his way of working will redound to the glory of his name. We're talking of a way of working that includes everything that has gone on, even the actions of wicked men. And we're talking about a plan and a purpose that cannot be resisted. As I have planned, so it will be. Well then, we've now got to turn to the historic question as to how God's plan, how all this that's revealed to us in Scripture relates to our actions. And what I have in mind discussing here is the classic division between Calvinist and Arminian thinking. Both within the evangelical community, both recognizing a great many of the parameters of Scripture, but divided over the way in which human action and divine sovereignty come together. Both the Calvinist and the Arminian are agreed that human actions are included in God's sovereign plan. But their disagreement is regarding what comes first. Is it God's plan or is it human action? Do people act in the way they do because God has decided that's how they're going to act? Or is it the case that God foresees how people are going to decide to act and on that basis decides on his own plan? Which comes first? Is it God's decision? And then human beings live and work out that decision? Or is it that the human decision is first and God then shapes his plan in accordance with that knowledge? I hope I don't lose you because you have to think very clearly this is not unimportant because we're dealing with the sovereign rights of God. We're trying to answer the question, how should we think about the relationship between God, the sovereign king, and ourselves, his subjects? How is it that we are to, to view the relationship between the divine and the human? And the Calvinist says, well, if you look at Scripture, God's plans first, and our human actions are secondary. And I'm sure you've heard that argued through, particularly in relation to the way in which individuals are saved. God in his plan has chosen that some will believe, and so they accept the offer of eternal life. He foreknows what will happen because he's decided what's going to happen. And the Calvinist says that's true not just in the matter of salvation, that's true in, as regards all other decisions. God is not dependent 
on what man wills or decides. God's sovereignty is absolute. He determines what's going to come to pass. His decision isn't even based on forecasting what individuals themselves will decide. He is in control. And the Arminian comes and says, no, that doesn't match up to the way I live. That doesn't match up to my intuitive grasp of the way I make decisions. When I decide to do this or that, I don't necessarily think about what God's already said has to happen. Look at this world. Look at so many human people uh, who would deny the existence of God. There's so many who go on their own way. How can you say that God's decision is first and theirs is second? They say, no, that's all wrong. God has created this universe in such a way that he's endowed human beings with free will. And he allows and expects us to exercise that will he's endowed us with. And they say, that's the only way you can possibly explain so many passages of Scripture. Especially those that hold out the free offer of the gospel. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If that's a genuine offer, they say, if that's a genuine invitation, there must be the real possibility of those who hear it either accepting or rejecting the offer. Otherwise, they say, how can it be a genuine offer? What would the point be in God making such an offer if he's already decided what's going to happen anyhow? They argue that God knows what all of us are going to do. He has foreknowledge, and therefore he wills that what he foresees will happen. Human action is not the result of God's decision. The human action comes first. God knows about that. And so the concept of human freedom is preserved as God draws up his plan, allowing for, and it differs between different thinkers, allowing for the decisions that he knows human beings will freely take. They say we've got genuine options both in salvation and in other matters too, because that's the way God structured the universe. He has decided to acquiesce in the decisions of the rational creatures, the rational responsible creatures he's created. And he structured his plan for the universe in terms of those decisions that he's foreseen. Where do you go from there then? It's a good job I don't know who I'm talking to most of the time. Well, I suggest the first place you go is back to Scripture. And you say, well, what do we find there? Is there anything in Scripture that suggests that God chooses humans for salvation because he knows what they're going to do, what they're going to decide. 
Is there any place in scripture that suggests that God draws up his plan on the basis of a reaction to what these humans have decided? Is it the case not so much as I have planned so it will be, but rather as they have decided so I will make allowance? And as you look through scripture, there is a lack. The strongest text that the Arminian point of view can bring forward is the phrase you find in Romans 8.29, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And there they say, yes, that's it. He foreknew, and therefore God made the choice. First, God looking forward and seeing what these humans would decide for themselves, then made the choice as to how he was going to structure his plan. No God-knowing individuals in Scripture carries with it the idea of favorable disposition and selection. It's not just a matter of advanced knowledge. When God said to Israel, you only have I known of all the nations of the earth, in Amos chapter 3, he didn't mean that they were the only nation of whom he had factual knowledge. The use of the word know there in relation to nations and to individuals is, it's not an English usage, but it is a scriptural usage, an Old Testament and New Testament usage. It's the idea of favorable disposition. It's the idea of choice. God said it also of Abraham way back in Genesis. I know him, that he will direct his family in the ways of the Lord. And that know is not just knowledge of the future. It's not I know the fact that The scriptures say very clearly, I know in order that I have chosen. I have set my favorable disposition towards him. And so when we read that the elect are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God in 1 Peter chapter 1, it's not saying, it is misunderstanding scripture to take it as saying that God has chosen because he knew facts about the elect and their choices first. That's not there. It is they are chosen according to the basis of God's favorable disposition towards them. And we don't have to go to texts like First Peter 1, uh, where you may perhaps be able to read things in either way. There are many clear passages, none more so than Romans chapter 9. You remember there, Paul is dealing with these hard matters and he's facing up to them head on. And he looks back to the birth of Isaac's twins. And he says there in Romans chapter 9, yet before a... It's at verse 11. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, notice he's ruling this out. Nothing that they'd done, 
either good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, not by what they would do, God foresaw they would do, not by works, but by him who calls. By the divine choice, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Scripture doesn't hesitate to use that language. But the Arminian says, well, does that mean we're not really free? Can God create genuinely free beings and yet render some or all the decisions they make certain? It's often felt by them that any decisive predetermination of the acts of created beings undermines their freedom. And it's to this point that Arminian thinking keeps coming back. When we make decisions, we think we're free. When we make decisions, we're not aware of any divine compulsion on us to go one way or the other. And so they say, Scripture, the message of Scripture must be true to this fundamental human perception that when I make up my mind, I am free. Well, one way that I found of trying to grapple with this difficulty is to distinguish between how something can be certain and how something can be necessary. If something's going to be certain, God has decided that it will happen. If something is going to be necessary, God must have decreed that it must happen. Now, what is certain implies that the individual cannot act contrary to the course of action that God has chosen. But there's still a choice for the individual facing him. When something is decreed, it implies that the individual hasn't the option to act contrary to what God has decreed. What I'm trying to express is what's often referred to as compatibilistic freedom. It's trying to do justice to the fact that Scripture says God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And also, at the time when we make decisions, we feel as if we are free. And it's doing it by trying to focus on what is meant by that freedom. I think the problem with the Arminian way of thinking is that they've come with an idea of what free choice must mean that doesn't fit in with Scripture. What does it mean to make a free choice? Well, one thing it means is that if I make a free choice, 
no one's screwing my arm up my back. I'm not under any external constraint. Nothing is forcing me. I'm free to do whatever I want. That's my idea of free choice. I'm free to do whatever I want. But that doesn't mean that I'm free from myself. The character I have, the nature I have, must shape and determine what it is that it pleases me. If I am free to do what I want, it's what I want and that's determined by what I am. I make all my own decisions, but as a moral and a rational being, those decisions aren't taken in a totally arbitrary fashion. I'm always limited by what I am myself. Take a simple example. When you're presented with a menu and asked what are you going to eat, and there's a choice. No one's forcing you to go one way or the other. But you choose one course rather than another. The choice may have been genetic. It may be something to do with your your, your physical makeup. Maybe something to do with past associations. I've eaten that before and I rather enjoyed it. It doesn't matter what it is. It's part of you. I'm free to make the choice within the limitations of who I am and what I am. And they're limitations that, for a large part, I didn't set for myself. They're set for me by my heredity, by my cultural environment, by my upbringing. And who's determined all those things? God himself. And what's more, God's placed me in a specific environment. He's left me there. God's actively at work in this world, influencing what takes place, influencing what I do in the light of the world around me and what I personally am. So I make a decision. I'm not under external compulsion to make that decision. But I can't escape from myself when I make it. And God is the one who perceives our thoughts from afar, who knows what's in the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is covered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And the God who has decided what is going to happen has created and placed us in the environment in which we are in such a way that what follows works out what he has decided. Our wills are free, and yet we're constrained by what we are in ourselves. Jesus said, by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. By their fruit you will recognize them. And when he gave gave very similar teaching in Luke's gospel, he concluded by saying, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. The tree isn't free to produce good or bad fruit at random. 
It's governed by its nature. It's not the goodness of the fruit that causes the goodness of the tree. It's the other way around. And according to what Jesus says, the same is true of the individual human being. It's what we are governs what we do, governs our decisions. Everyone who's ever existed in this world is free in the sense that they may do what they want to do. But as we are naturally, the, as we are unregenerate, we're certainly not free to do what we ought to do. Jesus said that if any man sins, he is a servant. He is a bondservant, a slave of sin. Uh, with our eyes darkened, with our inner being spiritually unresponsive, we will invariably reject the gracious offer of God when it's presented to us. We can't respond aright. It's out of the heart that the good comes. And if the heart is spiritually dead and unresponsive, there will no good come of it. We will inevitably say no to God's gracious offer. We need to be changed within. If we're left to ourselves, we can't do that. We will always go on saying no. It's only when the Holy Spirit effectively and sovereignly intervenes that he gives new potential, new life, so that we can now respond in a way we could never have done by ourselves. So I think the answer has to be along the lines that nowhere does Scripture say we are free in the sense of being outside God's control. We're free to make decisions according to our natures. We're responsible for the decisions we make according to our natures. And God, who is sovereign and in control of all, is guiding and leading us in those decisions. I think I have time for a rather lengthy quote that may perhaps help you. I enjoyed a bit of it anyhow. It comes from a relatively new systematic theology by Wayne Grudem. I won't quote it precisely. He says, Much of our difficulty in understanding how God can cause us to choose something willingly comes from our finite natures. And he imagines a hypothetical world. In fact, he imagines two hypothetical worlds. In the first of these worlds, all living things created by God are plants rooted in the ground. Only vegetation. Mind you, it's remarkable vegetation because it can think and argue. <laughs> and he imagines one plant arguing with another plant that God couldn't make living creatures who can move about in the earth. Because how could they carry their roots with them? And if their roots weren't in the ground, how could they receive nourishment? And he imagines an Arminian plant arguing with a Calvinist plant. And the Arminian plant says, if God's going to create a world with living things, he must create them with roots and with the characteristic of living all their lives in a single place. If you argue that God 
To say that God could not create living things that move about in the earth doesn't challenge God's omnipotence because God can't do things that are illogical. And so the Arminian plant says it's illogical to think of created things moving around, having the ability to live in various different places. And it's no limitation on God eh, to say he can't create such beings. Whereas the Calvinist eh, plant says, ah, but it's God's sovereignty. God, we're not able to limit what God can do by the thinking of our own plant-like experience. We've got to allow that God is able to create beings that can make decisions and yet all falls under his control. And he then imagines a second world. And this world has not just got plants in it, it's got animals. It's got Calvinistic dogs and Arminian dogs. And the Calvinist dog argues that it's possible for God to create creatures that can communicate with one another, not just by barking, but by recording their barks on paper and sending them silently to other creatures whom they've never seen who will be able to read the, look at these bits of paper and read the barks that are recorded on them. And the Arminian dog says, no, God can't do that. Because essential to the idea of communication between God's creatures is hearing and seeing, and this is the doggy world, and smelling them at the same time. You can't communicate with someone you can't see or hear or smell. And it's absurd to suppose that God could create beings that can communicate without hearing or seeing or smelling. And Grudem says, both these illustrations show how wrong the Arminian plant and the Arminian dog are. They've said God can't do this. God can't make free beings that are also under his control because they've limited the kind of thing that God can do on the basis of their own opinion of what finite creaturely existence involves. And that's what the Arminian theologian does. Looking at human experience, looking at what human beings now feel goes on when they make decisions, he says God can't create a creature who makes willing, voluntary and meaningful choices and at the same time those choices are ordained by God. He's saying what's happening is that human presuppositions have dictated the shape of the theology rather than the revelation that God's given. To Argue in the way that God cannot do this is limiting the wisdom and skill of God as creator. And it is appealing. It does appeal to us all because we still have that element of rebellion in us whereby we want to be more than we are. Whereby we want to be able to say that we've done something towards our salvation. 
There is something natural in man's fallen nature to exalt human freedom and ability at the expense of the scriptural absolute of divine sovereignty. Both things go on together. Our responsible and real decisions and God's sovereignty. Remember how Paul reminded the Philippians, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work, real effort, real activity. The world is not some sort of fatalistic place where you can say, God's decreed it all, it doesn't matter what I do. Not at all. The sovereign God who is in control of the end is the God who has also determined the way towards that end. And he requires that we work. But no sooner has Paul enjoined them, continue to work, than he turns and says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. The two flow together. They are two sides. They are two sides that so often we can't quite see how they mesh. But it is clearly set out in scripture that they both exist. And they both exist in a way that does justice to the sovereign rule of God. Now, I haven't much said much yet about God's majesty. So to be true to my remit, perhaps I better do that now. I don't need to say quite so much, because last week we looked at the majesty holiness of God. We saw how when we consider the perfection of God that sets him apart from the created realm, We're aware of our own finitude and we're abased before him. We saw how when we think of the ethical holiness of God, uh, we are aware of our own sinfulness and unworthiness. And in both these things we are aware of God's majesty. Because majesty simply means greatness. And so it came to refer to the grandeur and the dignity of a king. Majesty is something that we are called on to adore. God's majesty is something we're called on to acclaim. As we wonder at the sovereign ruler of all things and the intricacy of the wonderful way in which he holds all things together and all things work out according to his purpose, we are called on to bow down before him and acknowledge his rule and wonder at the perfection of it. We're told in Psalm 93 that God is robed in majesty. Greatness surrounds all that he does in the way in which clothes are draped on a human figure. In Psalm 145, David tells us that one generation will speak to another of the glorious splendor of the Lord's majesty. And they will do it, says David, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. He's saying there, there is a third avenue. We thought of God's perfections, his 
majesty holiness. Or we thought of his ethical holiness. Uh, But David in Psalm 145 is bringing before us God's providential rule, God's rule in this world, and saying as we think of the great things that God has done, so too we see the glorious splendor of his majesty. Because we realize that his greatness is without limits. Before him all that seems powerful in this world fades into insignificance. And that was why I asked that we began tonight by reading from Isaiah 40. Because that passage, that chapter, is a chapter of comfort. It's a chapter that is directed to God's bewildered people. God's bewildered people wondering what God's sovereign plan holds for them in the future. They were in need of comfort, both in the prophet's day and also in the times that he's looking forward to. They were in need of comfort. They were in need of having some orientation in the sovereign purpose of God. And the prophet directs their thoughts towards the arrival of the sovereign Lord. In verse 9, lift up your voice, do not be afraid, say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. The sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. The sovereign Lord comes and he's presented first in terms of tenderness and care. He comes first as the shepherd who gently leads those that are with young. And when we think of God's sovereignty, when we think of God's plan, we must always see it, not as a cold, impersonal fate, not as some blind force. This plan, this sovereign rule, yes, it has as its primary aim the glory of God, but it has as its secondary aim the comfort and the salvation of his people. It is the plan of a loving heavenly father, not the imposition of some Stalinist despot who will control all things no matter what. But then the prophet is directed to move on. And he's directed not to give more information about God's plan. The people are wondering what's going to happen to us. The people are wondering. It was either at the time shortly after um, the northern people of Israel had been taken into captivity... And the words seem to look forward to the future time when the same fate would come on Jerusalem in the south. It was at a time when the cause of true religion was at its lowest. It seemed almost to have been wiped out from the land of promise. And they were wondering, what can there be in this sovereign plan for the future? And God, apart from saying, your God will come, doesn't direct them to future facts 
to speculations and fantasies about the detail of the plan that he has kept hidden in his own counsel. He rather directs them to himself, to the one whose plan it is. And he says, focus on me. Think of all the powers that exist. Think of all the great and majestic things that may exist or threaten. And I am greater than them all. Look at what I've done in creation, he says in verse 12. He presents himself in a question as the one who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hands. Look at what is there. He hadn't derived it from any other. In creation we see the wonder of his power. He talks to the frightened people of God at a time when other nations were overwhelming their land. And he says to them, don't you see? There are these nations. They seem to be such a powerful influence in the destiny of the world. They seem to be such a powerful influence on your future. But in my sight, they're just the dust and the scales, a drop in the bucket. He says, look at the false religions that surround, that threaten to swamp out the true religion of God. Is it that that's causing you to quake? And he says there in verses 19 and 20, just look at them. Look at these idols. Look at these false religions, human creations, ever needing to be propped up so that they will not topple. He says, look at the world I've created, how complex it is, how many people there are in it. But I'm enthroned above it all. Look at the great men of this world. Look at all they think they can do. They've got themselves planted. They've got themselves sown. They've taken root. They've established regimes that they claim will last a thousand years. And I blow. And they wither. Look at the stars, he says. Do they escape out of my sovereign control? Look at the vastness of the cosmos. Is that more than I can manage? No, I call each one of them by name, and by my great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. There is the majesty of God. The majesty of the sovereign God over against the nations and their rulers, over against the false religions and their idols, over against the cosmos and the complexity of the galaxies and the stars, where your mind can get lost in thinking of the vastness of it all. This is the God. The same God who draws near like the shepherd, the same God who gently leads those that are with young, is the God of majesty, of power, and of sovereignty. And we can look forward with confidence when we do not set limits on the sovereignty and the majesty of our God. Because he's in sovereign control. What's happening is meaningful. We matter, his people matter. Though we are weak and limited and perplexed, he is not. He will not forget. And so we may have confidence. 
Our God reigns in sovereign majesty. He rules on high. He rules here too. His purposes will not be frustrated. And as we think of the sovereign God and the sure nature of his control, we are able to advance in our understanding of this God in a way that has confidence in a way that has assurance. If we focus on ourselves and our own problems, we're drawn down into a vortex, a whirlpool of despair. We can only rise above where we are by looking to him who is above where we are, to him who is ruling on high. And as we grasp the wonder of his rule and control, we are then able to build ourselves up in our faith because we are focusing on him and from him we have the strength and confidence to go on. The God of sovereign majesty. And is anyone like, would anyone like to make a comment or asked a question. I think uh, there's a question over on the manual left here. It says in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 6, it's not to do with evil necessarily, it might be tangentially to do with evil, I don't know. This might suggest it is, but never (laughs) persevere. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. How does that um, balance with what you said about there being one single plan between Oh yes, and it's a very good question, a very relevant one. Uh, Not just there, but in a number of other places in Scripture, God is presented as changing his mind. And this is something that's been talked about and argued over. The standard response is that this is presenting matters from the human point of view. That... This language is an attempt to convey to us uh, the reality of God's interaction with the world in terms not of saying that what God had previously thought was wrong in some way, but rather that there has been a, a change of human circumstance and God has to react appropriately to it. So that here we have a situation where the world had become very much more corrupt than God had ever created it or intended it to be. And it's presented in terms, in a very human picture of uh, divine regret at having created the world. It's part of our problem of how to use language to talk meaningfully about God. Because there is always going to be a gap between our language coming out of a human perception and God. And yet it's part of the way we're created. God made us in his image. And part of that is the ability to communicate and the ability to speak to and about God. But our language nearly always falls short 
didn't say that tonight, but I said it the previous two weeks. It was one of my themes. Here is a word. It's the best word we have, but it falls short. Here is this language that, to do justice to the rest of Scripture, which says that God's purposes do not change, we have to understand, it would seem, in terms of a human interpretation of the situation. Uh, There is a comeback to that, which is, could it not have been expressed in some other way? But scriptures doesn't seem to have our modern hang-ups. It will talk about God walking in the garden. It will talk about God coming down. In many ways, it seems to be language that is easing the way towards the reality of the incarnation. Uh, I'm not saying it's, it's... prophesying it, but it just seems to ease the way towards it. Uh, It's human language, and yet there is this gap that we can't totally close when we come to think about God and conceptualize. I, I get baffled when I try to think of a mind that takes in everything and knows Not just everything that is now, but everything that has ever been simultaneously. And yet if we are saying that God is infinite and that there is no limitation of his understanding, that's what we're saying. So we often have language that, uh, realities that just go beyond our ability to put into terms and words. Yes, Pam. Um, I got a bit lost when you were talking about distinguishing between something that was certain and something that was necessary. Could you explain that? Well, what I was trying to say is that God, when he foresees something, knows that it's certain. Let's build up to it. Uh, Given that we're made up the way we are, you can envisage God uh, before creation saying, well, a person with these 3,500 or million characteristics will behave in this way. He foresees it. Given that he knows all about us and the environment we're in, that's certain. But it's not necessarily decreed in the sense that God takes away every other possible choice. The fact that God, knowing all about us, doesn't mean that when we come into that real situation in the flow of history, we don't have a real choice to make. It's certain what we're going to choose, and God, who has created us, knows what that's going to be, and he's created us so that it will be, Uh, but at the same time, it's still a real choice for us. Whereas in the language, and it may not be the best language because decrees got other overtones and I wasn't really meaning them. Uh, It was the thought that if God had um, constrained it so that we had no choice, then that would be more than certain. It would be absolute. It would be predetermined. It would have, in effect, made us automatons. And that's the point we're trying to make, that there's still real, meaningful choices for human beings. And yet, the outcome of those choices is certain. And behind it all lies the plan of God, who created those beings, knowing all that they were, and knowing what they were going to do, and yet the choice we have is still real. 
clear up here. Yes? Yes? Just can I go back to your, to your first answer, Professor, uh, that you gave to the chap over there? The implications of what you're saying are, in my, perhaps I'm wrong, A, that Scripture contains an error in, in Genesis 6. That is really what, 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 what God meant. Or B, that there are some parts of Scripture which are hermeneutic and renders inaccessible to us. In other words, we can't understand that particular verse. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, I quite disagree with the conclusions. Um, I didn't draw conclusions. Well, you... Tried to put me on the horns of a dilemma uh, in the sense that I, I may have been saying scripture was not true, uh, and on the other hand, uh, I forget where you're saying. Our current hermeneutic, our current way of interpreting scripture, renders some parts of scripture inaccessible. It, we can't really understand the meaning of certain parts of scripture. Would you accept that as a premise? No, I wouldn't accept either. Uh, the idea I was trying to put forward is that truths about God are very much above our capacity. Scripture is God-given language that conveys to us a true, but not an exhaustively true, idea of what is being said. There is, in the language of God, regretting a... the fact that God changed his approach towards these people because their conduct had changed, I was trying to rebut the idea that this was something that had caught God unexpected or that in some way God's previous attitude towards them was wrong and therefore this the language... You see... We've got the translation regret or whatever other translation we have. It doesn't, it's, it's trying to grope towards the, an idea that we can only dimly begin to comprehend that the God who has decided everything, the God who knew that this was going to happen, looks with what has happened, looks at the fact that there are people in rebellion against him, And he doesn't look at it coldly. He doesn't look at it uh, in the sort of fateful terms. Uh, there, there is divine feeling involved. It's, uh, so the, the language is pointing us to not just a change of attitude, not just a change of decision of, of um, conduct, but of inner being and attitude as well. And yet without the overtones... that would be involved in human regret, which, is, which so often arises from, oh, I did that wrong. I, I failed there. Which are ideas that are, are totally uh, inapplicable to God. So what I'm trying to say is that the language is leading us in a certain direct direction, but because of our finitude, there will always be a gap. I think there will still be a gap in heaven between what God is and what we understand of him. And that's one of the activities of heaven, 
exploring what is in this gap, this vast gap. Now, our hermeneutic being inadequate, yes, I suppose our hermeneutics are always inadequate. Uh, we haven't got uh, the final word, the final answer for interpreting all that Scripture is actually saying. We always come at it as children of our own age. We come at it with our own presuppositions. Uh, they vary not just from one individual to another, but from one generation to the next. Uh, so there's always, we've always got problems. The problems are not in the word. The problems are the ones that we're bringing to the word. Uh, it can often throw light on them. It can correct us. We can improve our understanding. Um, but we, there is this fundamental gulf. The, the finite mind. And it's the finite mind not yet perfect in holiness uh, that is trying to grapple with the Holy One. And so there, there's a gulf. Yes, Brian. Professor Mackay has already partly uh, referred to this, but I wonder if he would uh, develop it a little further, this matter of the proper use of the doctrine of sovereignty. One area that's becoming increasingly relevant in this is an interaction with the Muslim world and their particularly fatalistic view of the way in which the world is controlled. You, the proper use of sovereignty is never to divorce it from the character of the sovereign. That, that is the essential scriptural message that I, I tried to bring out in that sort of brief run through Isaiah 40. It all starts off with the shepherd. And the, although the shepherd is great and infinitely exalted, he still at the end is the one who is helping the faint and the weak. Even though we've gone through the, the galaxies to get there, we're back down again. So that that level, the doctrine of sovereignty is totally at variance with the concept of a totally determined world that's in the hand of some fate and nothing matters. It's in the hands of God the Father who is, has shaped and determined all things to accomplish his purpose, not only his own glory, but the salvation of his people. And We do get ourselves sometimes tied up in knots over sovereignty. Uh, if we approach it the wrong way, we can seem to think of, make ourselves seem unimportant, insignificant, devalue our humanness. Whereas the whole point is that the doctrine of divine sovereignty doesn't devalue humanness, it gives it its final meaning because it's in terms of his plan, God's plan, that we can actually accomplish what we are intended to be. So the, the, the right use of the doctrine is not as a doctrine that uh, says you can drive at 70 miles an hour up the wrong side of a motorway and what will be will be. Uh, it's not a fatalistic doctrine. It must 
the words, as I'm speaking to you just now, I'm becoming more and more unhappy with the word sovereignty because it takes it as an abstract principle and it's divorcing it from God himself. Uh, I haven't got another word immediately to hand and I think there's centuries of use of the word sovereignty, but it's, there's that danger of making it impersonal and it's not. And the other use is to see sovereignty and the divine plan as that which gives meaning and purpose. The greatest efforts that have been made in advancing the cause of Christ have come from those who were sure of God's sovereign control and were therefore able to go forward with confidence because it was the Father's cause they were fighting for and it was the Father's purpose they were uh, fulfilling. Uh, sovereignty should give us confidence in God the Father and it should, rather than taking away from the desire to work, it should further it and focus it in terms of his plan. There's an area there that's verging in next week. And at that point I'm going to uh, call this part of proceedings to a halt uh, and do urge you to be back next week when we consider the providence and power of the living God.